0: Well, good morning and Happy New Year. I trust all of you had a safe holiday, an enjoyable one, quiet one, hopefully. Our main text for this morning is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 to 18. So if you have your Bibles with you handy, would you all please turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Verses 1 to 18. Now this is a very familiar passage. I'm sure all of us know. Four Sundays ago, we looked at chapter 3, verses 1 to 13, and we saw in it, as the main theme, the model brother, as displayed by Timothy, Paul's faithful companion and co-laborer. Timothy, as you remember, was with Paul right to the very end. So in Timothy, we see all the right stuff, so to speak, in a Christian brother. He, it was, whom Paul sent to the church at Thessalonica to establish them in their faith and to comfort them concerning their hardships. Paul, as you recall, was unable to go because of extenuating circumstances so he sent the next best man available, Timothy the Evangelist. Then as we come to chapter 4, we see a twofold division. The first division includes verses 1 to 12 and can be seen as a series of exhortations for the practical aspects of the Christian walk. Since the Apostle has already taught some basic fundamental truths or doctrines to these new believers, he now proceeds to remind them of their practical responsibilities, their walk as Christians. We might therefore look at this first division as the believer's model walk. The Apostle Paul begins by saying, Furthermore, then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. We must remember that this was already a model church at Thessalonica. They were an example to Christians everywhere. They were an amazing little body of believers, considering the length of time they had been believers. Their faith, their love, and their hope in Christ were well known. Nevertheless, they had not yet arrived at the state of perfection in these areas. Neither would they ever reach that state on this side of heaven. But Paul nevertheless encouraged them to press on toward the mark, to keep reaching for that high calling of God. He reminds them that his exhortations to such a walk come from the Lord Jesus himself. These exhortations which will follow are not a result of Paul's own carefully calculated set of rules for good living, but rather commandments of the Lord. Though Paul spoke them and explained them more simply, perhaps, they are nonetheless the very commandments of God. And as the commandments of God, they were to be obeyed. Sometimes we have trouble with commandments, don't we? And sometimes it really doesn't matter whether they are all commandments of God or the commandments of men. We all tend to pick and to choose. We choose to obey those things which please us, while we tend to ignore those which displease us. Yet, if we are in Christ, indwelt by the Spirit of the living God, then our exhortation is, If ye love me, keep my commandments. So, in verse 3, the Apostle Paul gives the first exhortation. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. There is unfortunately much confusion today in the Christian church about what fornication really is or what it might also include. So-called biblical scholars and textual critics go to great extents to argue that fornication means other things than just fornication. The bottom line is this, fornication means fornication. Voluntary sexual intercourse between unmarried persons. Adultery is different. The word is never used to mean or to include fornication in scripture. Adultery, though similar in nature, is different in relationship to time of marriage. Adultery is voluntary sexual intercourse between married persons other than husband and wife. Under the Mosaic law, adultery was punishable by death, stoning both the adulterer and the adulteress. But as time went on, this situation became more complex in Jewish law. For the believer, who is not under the law but under grace, Christ is his law. His exhortation is this. The will of God is that all believers abstain from fornication. Because now that the believer is in Christ, his or her body is becomes a vessel or a temple of the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 619 19-20, Paul later writes, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are all bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. God has declared the body of all believers to be the temple of the Holy Ghost. Do we believe that? Do we believe also that his temple should not be defiled? Then we as believers will have no difficulty in believing also that fornication or premarital sex will defile the body which is the temple of the Holy Ghost, and thus all believers should abstain from fornication. We have to remember that the Greeks were infamous for sexual immorality, which included a host of sexual sins, fornication, adultery, incest, orgies, sexual promiscuity, foremost Uh, or formed a most integral part of their pagan worship. Now that many of these Greeks or Gentiles have become new believers in Christ, they were to turn away from all of these old practices and walk in newness of life. And those in the church at Thessalonica were known everywhere For their testimony, which included, as we saw earlier on, a turning to God and a turning away from idolatry. Chapter 1, verse 9, I believe it was. Much of their idolatry included sexual immorality. And so Paul reminds them in verse 5 that unlike the Gentiles who know not God, they were to live differently. They were to walk in separation from all that was vile and immoral. Then in verse 6, we see the apostles sound a second exhortation. That no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter. Now notice, please, in your King James Bible, the word any is in italics. That means that it's not found in the original Greek. Some languages do not have certain words. And therefore, we, when we translate them, have to supply them. For instance, in Russian, there is no the and there is no a. And we have to be careful that we get the right context when we translate, for instance, the book or a book. You will probably notice that Russians when they speak English will sometimes say I want the book. They don't put a or the because that is a transliteration of their language. And so it is the case here that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter because that the Lord is the avenger of all such as we also have forewarned you and testified. For this is also the will of God, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter. Whereas the first exhortation dealt primarily with the believer's personal, private life, this one here deals with the believer's, it seems, business and social life and the effect on his brother's life and on society as a whole. Now, whether we take this one to be completely separate as an exhortation or an extension of the first one, that is the fornication one, this one thing is certain, that our sins affect others. If there is sin in the camp, the whole camp Is affected. And so the believer who may enter into the sin of fornication, he not only sins against his own body because he has defiled the temple of the Holy Ghost, but he also causes the woman hurt. When the sin is discovered, she suffers shame, her family suffers loss of honor and everyone closely associated to both parties is affected negatively in some fashion or other. There too is always the danger of sexually transmitted diseases, which can affect both parties and consequently bring much anxiety and suffering to all. And so the warning here is that the Lord is the avenger of all such. The warning in Scripture is, be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap, we're told in Galatians 6-7. Now if we take verse 6 of chapter 4 as a separate any matter exhortation, then we see the believer's business and social life here. Do not defraud one another in any matter. If it is a business deal, then our integrity in dealing with others should be evident. Honesty and truthfulness should be the raiment of the believer's character so that others may have the assurance of trust and reliability in their dealings with the believer. In any case, Now that these new believers were in Christ, their lives were to constantly reflect it, because God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. He therefore that despiseth, despiseth not men, but God, who hath also given unto us his Holy Spirit. Now, this indeed is a very stern caution to all believers. If we despise these exhortations, these commandments that the apostle has just given, then we ignore and we ignore and scoff at them. Then we are forewarned that we despise not man, but God who gave them. These are not man's exhortations. Man's would be very opposite, but these are God's exhortations. If we despise them, then it is one and the same as despising God himself. Next, we come to a series of positive commands, verses 4 to be exact. Uh, Four commands, verses 9 to 12. The first two exhortations that we just looked at were negative indeed. Don't do them. Don't commit fornication. Don't go beyond and defraud your brother in any matter. But here, as we come to the third, it is a positive exhortation. It is what the Thessalonians are to continue doing. But as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And indeed, ye do it toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren, that ye increase more and more. This was one of their noble qualities, love for the brethren. It was one of their Strong points. It was witnessed abroad by others in their labor of love. And so Paul does not have to spend much time in teaching them this. He was already delighted by their demonstration of this fruit, but he nonetheless urges them to continue developing this fruit. Increase your love more and more. Don't neglect it. They did not have this love because they managed to dig deep enough to retrieve it as the world would have us to believe. But rather, this love was one aspect of the grace of God bestowed upon them as they believed. They were taught it by the Spirit of God who indwelt them as they yielded themselves to him. The implication here being that they would increase more and more in love as they yielded themselves more and more to the indwelling Christ. The fourth exhortation comes in verse 11 and that ye study to be quiet. It is a most desirable thing to have a calm and quiet temper, a peaceful disposition not only as a non-Christian, but especially as a Christian. This is sure to bring happiness, not only to ourselves, but also to those around us. There is nothing more disagreeable than to be in the constant presence of a grouch, one who at every turn is ready to strive with others and do battle over the littlest thing. Proverbs fifteen one reminds us that a soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. The spirit which is given to strife soon leads to contention, which brings the fruit of discord and division. Such a soul can easily be tempted by the devil to bring much dishonor, to his testimony for the Lord. Study to be quiet. Learn of us as we had earlier commanded you. Remember how ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God. Verse 1. And as these young believers would yield themselves to the indwelling Christ, he would be able to produce in them that spirit of quietness. The fifth exhortation also comes in verse 11, and to do your own business. Mind your own business. Don't meddle in other people's affairs if they don't concern you. If we get involved in other people's business when we shouldn't, what happens? We become involved in situations that may bring about much tension and stress, and disquiet us those who are busy bodies and meddle in other people's affairs usually have little quiet in their own minds and at the same time cause much disturbance amongst their neighbors and finally the sixth exter- exhortation which is also found in verse 11 forms a triad and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. All abled body believers are expected to work with their own hands. They must labor to eat. They must exercise the natural physical talents which God gave them. It is a basic principle of scripture that all men must labor to eat. Second Thessalonians 3.10 tells us, For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. The scriptures know not of believers who do not labor. That may be often said of the unbeliever, of the sluggard, as scripture calls them. Slothfulness is not a fruit of the spirit, but rather of the flesh. We read in Proverbs 20, verse 4, The sluggard will not plow by reason of the cold. Therefore shall he beg in harvest and have nothing. Work with your own hands, says the apostle. This is a commandment of God. It is God's will that his people labor for their meat. The believer is not to be dependent upon others for his livelihood, When abled body. This, of course, can be a very touchy issue today amongst believers who are out of work, perhaps on financial assistance plans of some sort. There are times when this is necessary, but it must never become a habit or a way of life. Remember that our testimony is greatly reduced and even destroyed in the eyes of the world by those who become slothful. I'm sure the apostle understood just how touchy the issue of money and religion was. Look for yourselves at the response of non-believers when money is mentioned in the Lord's work. That is one thing that the Lord never receives money from the unsaved as a sacrifice of giving to the Lord's work. And neither should the church ever solicit funds from the unsaved at large. Yes, Paul himself, even as he labored among the churches in the word, also labored for meat so that none could ever accuse him and rob him of his testimony. Though Paul was fully justified in living from the gospel by the support of the Lord's people in proportion to his ministry, he chose to labor so that he would not be a burden to the Lord's people. Later, of course, when his ministry grew and circumstances changed, he no longer labored in tent making, for he spent much of his time in prison For his testimony. Then in verse 12, the Apostle gives the Thessalonians two practical reasons why they should labor and be industrious. Number one, so that they may have a good report as believers, and secondly, so that they lack nothing. If they earn their own bread and provide for their own families where possible, they will have a peace and a quietness of soul, knowing that they owe no man for their gain, but only God. Thus ends the first division with six exhortations for a model walk in a Christian's life. Number one, abstain from fornication. Number two, do not go beyond and defraud a brother in this or any matter. Number three, increase more and more in love one to another. Four, study to be quiet. Five, mind your own business. And finally, six, work with your own hands so that you may have lack of nothing. The second major division begins with verse 13 and ends with verse 18. This second part deals with the believer's hope and the Lord's return in the air for his church, better known as the rapture. It seems that when Timothy returned to Paul, he informed him that the Thessalonians had become concerned about their brethren who had already died since becoming believers. They knew about the Lord's return. They were joyfully waiting for his coming. But what about the brethren that died since Paul had left them? What about those who perhaps had been martyred? How would they share in the Lord's kingdom? And so Paul further enlightens them concerning this matter. And so he writes in verse 13, But I would would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also, which sleep in Jesus, will God bring with him. For this we say unto you, By the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them, that is, go ahead of them, which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then, We which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Notice, first of all, that the apostle introduces to them a new revelation concerning the dead in Christ. They had already believed in the Lord's imminent return. They already knew that he would return to establish his kingdom and that the believers would reign with him. Now, don't forget that this first letter to the Thessalonians was the first epistle that Paul had written. These Thessalonians did not have a completed New Testament scripture to study from. They had to listen very carefully as they were taught by these apostles and ministers of God, verbally concerning New Testament doctrine. They had to make mental notes. So often they may not have heard it correctly and therefore concern developed. Such was the case here about their departed loved ones. What role will they share in? They believed in the resurrection of the just, but the other details were a little fuzzy. So Paul clarifies the situation for them. Listen, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant or remain in the dark concerning these believers who are dead. I don't want you to sorrow for them like unbelievers would who have no hope. Then he gives them the reason for their hope and assurance in verse 14. For if we really believe that Jesus died on the cross and took the penalty for all our sins, and we do, and if we believe that he was buried and after three days rose from the dead because God accepted his perfect sacrifice for sinners, and we do, then even so, says Paul, in the same manner, those believers who have recently died plus the dead believers of all the past ages, if they were in Christ, then God will bring them with him when he comes. So don't worry, they won't miss out. He then gives them further revelation concerning this aspect of the Lord's return, which we know is the rapture. He says in verse 15, We who are still alive at his coming shall not go up to him ahead of those who already died believing in him. In fact, what will happen is this. The Lord himself, that is Jesus Christ himself, shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. As soon as this happens... Then all the dead who have ever trusted in the Lord, all believers who died, will be raised first. They will rise from the dead first. Then, and only then, we, all those who are still alive when he comes, will be transformed and will be caught up together with them, with those whom you were concerned about, that had already died, we will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now this is the new revelation, the rapture. This particular aspect of the Lord's return had been a mystery. The Gospels did not reveal this particular aspect of being caught up in the air first. The Gospels revealed that later aspect of his actual physical return to this earth with his saints. There were only glimmers, glimpses of the rapture in the Gospels. But there was no clear revelation yet as to where those saints who came from and who was all included in that great multitude of hosts. And so continues Paul in verse 17 Shall we ever be with the Lord? Wherefore, comfort ye one another with these words. Now that you know that you will all be together with the Lord when he returns, now that you know that no one is going to be left behind, comfort one another with these words. Later, of course, Paul writes the second epistle to the Thessalonians and he gives even more detail concerning the revelation of the rapture, the reign of the Antichrist and the Lord's physical return to this earth. But for now, this was to be their comfort. And so we come to the end of our message for this morning, but as always, you know, I must ask you this, these questions. Do you have discomfort? Are you waiting with joy for the Lord's appearing? Are you looking for the rapture too? If you are, the scriptures say in 2 Thessalonians 4, 8, that there will be a crown of righteousness for all those who love his appearing. If you are saved this morning, if you are in Christ, then whether you understand all the details or not concerning the rapture, then you too will be part of that marvelous experience of being caught up in the air, dead or alive. But if perchance you have not yet trusted Christ as your Savior, then according to Scripture you will have no part in the Lord's return, but instead of fearful awaiting for that final judgment at the white throne judgment seat and eternal separation. If you haven't done so already, won't you turn to him even now, while there is yet still some time? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Let's pray. Father, how can we ever thank Thee for the love that Thou has demonstrated towards us in the sending of Thy Son, the Lord Jesus, to the cross of Calvary to pay for all of our sins. The penalty has been paid in full. Jesus paid it all. And so, Father, we thank Thee that we also have the Word of God that explains this so clearly and encourages us daily as we read its sacred pages. We thank thee for this little church at Thessalonica and trust that we too will emulate this wonderful example of a model church. Part us now, O Lord, with thy blessings and If the Lord be not come, may it please thee once again to reunite us around his table next Lord's Day. For we do ask it always in his name and for his glory. Amen.